Well, good morning. Good to see you here. And I want you to take God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. This morning, I want to speak to you about Academy Award religion. And as we look at God's Word together, we're going to be looking in the sixth chapter. We've been in the fifth chapter now for uh, several weeks. And just by way of refresher... And by way of comparison, so we can see where we're flowing in Jesus' message to us as his disciples, when you look at chapter 5 in Matthew's gospel, you see that Jesus concerns himself with the presence of righteousness in his disciples. Now, there'll be a subtle shift as we move into the sixth chapter, and you do recognize that they didn't have the chapters and the verse numbers when this was originally written, but we do see in this teaching that there is a subtle shift as he moves from the practice, from a, rather the presence of righteousness in the lives of his disciples in chapter 5 to the practice of righteousness in the religious life of his disciples. In chapter 6, that's what we're going to see. Now, in our discussion, what we're going to find is that Jesus discusses the matter and the motivation of our religious practice as it relates in three areas, to others, as it relates to our generosity and our giving, and then to God as it relates to prayer, and to ourselves as it relates to fasting. Now, in each of these, the practice of these activities which are directed toward God should be with an eye toward an audience of one, and that is God himself. And I want you to follow along what Jesus says to us, beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your father may be in secret. Uh, and your fa- so that uh, your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, let your eyes run down to the 16th verse. And let's listen to what he continues saying there. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting's obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face. So that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Father, as we uh, hold your word before us, 
uh, the great desire that we have this morning is that it will not only be something before us, but it will be something in us. And that it will do your work. And Lord, that it will be obvious that you have worked in our lives. Obvious in our relationship with you. Obvious to those closest to us. And obvious, Lord, to that circle of relationships that flows out from there. Be glorified, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Theatrical religion is not confined to the New Testament era. Both then and now, some religious performances might merit a special category of Academy Award. In our text, I want us to approach Jesus' message to us this morning from the angle of seeing that Jesus prohibits religious demonstration. Jesus perceives religious ostentation. And Jesus prescribes the proper religious motivation. First of all, Jesus prohibits religious demonstration. And we see this as he speaks to us in the first of each of these three sections of Scripture. The first phrases that appear in verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 16. He prohibits the demonstration of our religious deeds, first of all. Whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Jesus here is making an assumption. The assumption is is that his disciples will give to the needy. This was a commandment that was given in the Old Testament. It was a sure sign of Israel's faithfulness to God that they would care for one another, and if anyone had a need, they would move to address that need. And we see that this was an action of the early New Testament church on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the people. The gospel began to spread. Numbers were added to the church. And because many of those people were from outside the city and not prepared to stay for any great length of time, and following the day of Pentecost, they lingered there as the gospel began to take root in the hearts of people But many of those people who had come had only made preparations for so much. And they began to care for one another and to take care of each other. But beyond that, they cared for those who were in need. This was a true mark that Jesus had touched their lives. Now, Jesus takes for granted that you and I will give to the needy. But just as he was concerned with the human heart in relation to anger and lust, so also in relation to prayer. He looks at the notification, the location, the motivation of unworthy giving. He looks at the unworthy giver and says, that person only gives with public notification. Jesus' reference to a trumpet, uh, some have questioned, is this figurative or literal, uh, literal? And the truth of the matter is is that when I was in Israel, I had the opportunity to go and visit a large amphitheater that was on the Mediterranean coast. And 
this huge amphitheater could host uh, uh, special guests and events and large theatrical performances. And it was there in honor to Caesar, and it was this huge amphitheater right there on the coastline uh, down from Haifa. And the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus' words here are a reference to ancient theater. You see, back in the day, it wasn't like when we go to the movies now and the movie begins, and what does it begin with? It begins with the credits scrolling across the front, who the actors are, what role they're playing. There was none of that back in the day. But when people would hear that a famous actor or actress was coming to town, obviously it would draw a crowd to the theater. People would come because they had heard the word was spread. They wanted to get there early. They wanted to get a good seat. They wanted to be in the right place. And, of course, those seats were reserved just as they are today. The wealthy people sat down below. The people who had the third-rate seats were up high. You know, the nosebleed section. It was similar in that day. But there was something unique about the performance. Because there were no credits scrolling across the screen... And because the characters in theater wore masks, the identities of those persons were concealed from the audience. And so what happened was the producer of the theater production would have a trumpet blown when the actor or actress of great reputation would enter onto the stage. And, of course, what would this do? This would solicit the applause of the crowd. This would notify them, you know, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, she's about to enter the stage. However, since there were uh, people there who were ready and anxious to see that person, it was a special way to draw attention to that individual. Jesus says the unworthy give, giver gives only with this kind of public notification. And he also says the self-conscious giver gives only in a demonstrative location. Now this individual makes a show by giving, look at it in verse 2, in the synagogues and on the streets. Now an actor and an actress stands out on the stage where everybody can see them. The self-conscious giver, likewise, uses the synagogues and the streets as their stage where they stand out. But most significantly, the unworthy giver gives with a spurious motivation. The text tells us that their motivation is the glorification of others. As an actor or actress is motivated by the applause of people, so is the unworthy giver. So first of all, Jesus prohibits the demonstration of our religious deeds. And Jesus prohibits the demonstration of our religious devotion. Looking on, you'll notice in verse 5, the first part of that verse says this, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. 
Now again, what we see here in this text, and it's obvious to us throughout, that when Jesus is speaking to these people, he's not saying, if you give or if you pray, Jesus is doing what? He's assuming that if you're his disciple, these are activities that you will engage in. And so he seems that his people will be praying. And so he speaks to them in relation to prayer. And Jesus denounces the unworthy obsession with a location. Some love to demonstrate their devotion in the public place while neglecting it in the private place. I don't know about you, but for years and... uh, we used to have a thing called Wednesday night prayer meeting. I don't think I'm alone in remembering that. I remember we used to have special meetings planned like we would call it revival week. We'd have cottage prayer meetings where people would gather together in a home and we would pray for our neighbors and we would invite people to come and we'd pray for God to move. And as we think about that, I think to me it goes back and reminds me that in all of those times a public gathering of people for prayer really has its own full meaning if people are practicing prayer in private before they show up in public. This seems to be what Jesus is getting at in his word. He's looking deeper. And so what he says here is he says some have an an unworthy obsession with location. You see, the Jews had stated hours for prayer, and there were three of them. They had a morning hour, they had a noontime hour, and they had an evening time for prayer. It was possible for a person to so order their life that they could be found in a public plaza when it came time to pray. But the location has behind it an unworthy motivation. And what was that? To be seen by people. There's nothing wrong with praying even in public places. The determinative factor is the motive. I don't really know anybody personally that showed up to pray in public in order to try to impress people. But I do remember this. I do remember there used to be a saying in ministry that people showed up on Sunday morning because they loved the pastor. They showed up on Sunday night because they loved the church. And they showed up on Wednesday night because they loved the Lord. I assume if there is any truth to that, that persons might would feel a sense of obligation to show up on Wednesday night. And Jesus hits at the heart of this when he strikes at the motivation for prayer and he speaks about an unworthy obsession with the location and an unworthy motivation on the part of the people. We notice also he prohibits the demonstration of our religious discipline as he moves on to speak about fasting. Whenever you fast, he says in verse 16, 
don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Jesus never gave false warnings. There would be little point in Jesus bringing up these little details that he gives to us in this text if there was not something to it. Evidently, it is uh, here seen that there were certain people who would deliberately let other people know that they were fasting. Our problem is not that people might deliberately know that we're fasting. Our problem today is that many believers know little about the discipline of fasting. In biblical times, there were certain purposes, uh, not in biblical times, but in any time, but evidence in the Scripture. What we see is that when persons fasted, it was typically related to one of three things. It was penitence for sins of the past. It was for seeking God's direction with the problems that they were facing in the present. Or even as in the life of Jesus, spending the whole night in prayer and spending much time in fasting, even before he calls his disciples who would be with him, fasting is sometimes a way that we go about emptying ourselves of all of those worldly things that have their claws in us. And we're saying... I don't want the things of the world to have hold of me. Remember, Jesus said, man shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, let me ask you a question. Do you eat to live or live to eat? I mean, I remember when I worked at uh, Lifeway, and lunchtime would come around, I'd be thinking about what to get for lunch with what my wife was fixing for dinner. You know, I didn't want to double up on tacos or spaghetti. And so what we would do is we'd plan out our day around what we were going to eat at the noon meal so that we wouldn't mess up or interfere or overlap with what was going to be served in the evening meal. Now, if you got a bologna sandwich, that was usually a safe cut bet. (laughs) But what Jesus is doing here is he's going at the very heart of people, and he is looking at them, and he is saying to them that some people in the demonstration of their religious discipline make it very obvious to others that they're fasting. In ancient theater, obviously, the actors and the actresses wore makeup and they wore masks to present a certain mood. For example, if a person was playing a character on stage who was sad, they would wear a mask that had a painted frown on their mask. If they were playing a happy character, they would what? Wear a mask that had a smile painted on their face. So as with giving and with praying, Jesus forbids the display of spiritual discipline either in our attitude or our appearance. When you fast, he says, don't be gloomy or make your face unattractive. So Jesus, first of all, prohibits 
religious demonstration, but secondly, I want you to notice with me that Jesus perceives religious ostentation. And we see this in the 2nd and 5th and 16th verses again. In verse 2, 5, and 16, the Lord literally rips the mask off of ostentious, self-conscious religion. And he gives it a proper designation. Verse 2, what does he do? He labels it hypocrisy. Now, this comes from a Greek word, hypocrites, And that is a word that is synonymous with these characters in Greek theater. Today, when we call someone a hypocrite, what we typically mean or what we associate with the word hypocrite is somebody who says one thing but does something else. Now, that is a correct meaning in one sense of the definition, but it's not what Jesus has in mind here. The Pharisees often did what they said they were going to do. They did give to the needy. They did pray. They did fast. What Jesus is targeting here is that they did it for show. So he grants it an appropriate compensation. He says, you know, if you're going to do it for show, there's nothing wrong with theatrical performances when you're in the theater, but there's no place for theatrical performance when it comes to our religious practices. So he grants it the appropriate compensation. He says this, they have their reward. Now, what is the reward an actor or actress gets? It's immediate gratification. Similarly, Jesus says there is a reward for ostentatious religion. It can earn you prestige, it can earn you power, it can earn you a position. But in so doing, a person loses the divine reward. And Jesus says, there'll be no reward for you in the hereafter. Neither will God honor you in the present. So lastly, what I want you to see is that Jesus prescribes religious motivation. Now we look at verses 3, 6, and 17 and 18. And in these verses, our Lord prescribes the proper motivation for our religious deeds, our religious devotion, our religious discipline. The proper motivation for our religious deeds is forgetfulness of self. This has to do with generosity, with helping people who are in need, giving to the poor. The proper motivation for our religious deeds is forgetfulness of self. And he says this, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, how many of you have ever thought to yourself that, you know, my left hand is going to do something and my right hand has no idea what it's going to do? Anybody in here? That would be some kind of magic trick. Because the brain center is what is controlling both, right? 
So your brain is telling you when your left hand is doing something, and it can also tell you when your right hand is doing something. The obvious point is here is that this is an impossibility. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is that we should be so unself-conscious about what we're doing that our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing. Hypocritical giving may not only be for man's approval, but may also be for smug self-approval. And that's what Jesus is going at here. A person can feel good about themselves if they let other people know that they're giving to other people. We do feel good when we give to other people. Have you ever given, though, and thought to yourself, you know, I got some bills coming up. How much can I give? How much can I spare? How much can I do at this particular time? We sometimes have this thought process that we go through, and God gives us a brain, we ought to use it. But then there are those times, have you ever had that moment when the Spirit of God was moving in such a way in your life and you saw a need, you just gave and you didn't think at all about what it cost you. And you didn't think at all about what you would get out of it. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The proper motivation for our religious deeds is the forgetfulness of ourselves. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But then I want you to notice also that the proper motivation for our religious devotion is the hiddenness of self. This is what Jesus says. But when you pray, go into your private room and shut your door. Now, the Greek word that appears there is the word tamion, and it was a word that means a room that did not have windows or a door to the outside of the building. So that when a person would go into that room and they would close that door, they would be in total privacy by themselves. Now, perhaps you have watched the television series The Chosen, or perhaps you've watched some YouTube video of Jewish worshipers going into the temple to pray. And what do they do? They put a covering over their heads when they enter into the temple, and then they would go into a room, a small room. And it would be a small room that you could close behind you, and it would be a place that is reserved for only two people, you and God. And likewise, what Jesus is getting at here is he says, you know, when you go into a private room, what does it do? It, it cuts out disturbances, that is, if you left your phone behind you. It takes away from the distraction. But you know what else it does, and this most of all? It eliminates detection. The prayer life, Jesus is saying, is above all else to be the hidden life. Corporate prayer is a reality only to the extent that it is a gathering of people who also practice hidden prayer. 
And notice that he also says something about the proper motivation for religious discipline. And he says that proper motivation comes from the naturalness of self. Verses 17 and 18, we read, But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others. So far from exhibiting it itself, our private religious discipline should purposefully conceal itself. Jesus expects us to be completely spiritual while remaining perfectly normal. I think all of this ties itself together with the statement that Jesus repeats three times. And you noticed it as we read through the text. In verses 4, 6, and 18, three times Jesus says this, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When I read that, my mind went back to something we studied earlier when we began this series called Follow Me. This is what Jesus does. He invites a disciple to follow him. The disciple uh, is one who follows a master teacher. Jesus, when he invited them to come, he said, you know, come be my apprentice. And then what would he do? He would live his life before them and they would observe him. And then Jesus would entrust some of that to them, and they would do it while Jesus observed them. And then eventually they would go out and they would do it themselves. They would repeat what the Master did. Three times in our text, Jesus says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And I got to thinking, how does this idea of secrecy Square with something that Jesus said to us back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Have you thought about this? Do you remember what he said in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. And it's very clear in that moment that what Jesus is saying is that our walks with him are intended to be visible. They're intended to be observable. We are supposed to let our light shine so that other people can see our good works. The difference is in the motivation. Rather than drawing attention to ourselves, the goal of our religious practice is for others to give all the glory to God. We're not part of the conversation. I want to leave you with one more thought. When we read the words, we'll reward you, I don't know what comes to your mind, but here's what comes to my mind. I think of a future reward. I mean, this is natural in the English language. He will reward you. You know, like putting one more jewel in your crown. Or if you do this, then there's something for you that's coming in the future. 
But Jesus is not referring to something later. He's referring to a reward that we will get right here and now. Now, what is the variance? The variance is in the translation from the Greek to English. See, when it comes to translating the Greek to the English, we have limited options. Whereas in the Greek language, there's more than one option. In the Greek language, the verb tense that is used will reward you means present tense with continuing results. So what Jesus is saying is this. When you're giving, when you're praying, when your fasting is authentic, when it's real from the heart, the reward you will receive will be in the present in that it will change you now with continuing results. Hey, I want you to lean in close real good because you know it'd be easy for you to drift kind of in and out. You know what God wants this morning? He wants for us what we should want for ourselves. And you know what you should want, what I should want? Authentic, lasting life change. What God wants for us is what we should want for ourselves. You know, I I mentioned my trip to Israel. uh, And I've also shared part of my testimony of where when I first became aware of my sin and my need of Jesus, I remember uh, my mother made a very uh, clear presentation of the gospel at me when I was 12. Now, I'm the youngest of four kids by a lot. And so uh, my older brother and sisters had all made professions of faith in Christ. But, you know, by this time, my brothers graduated from college. And so I'm uh, uh, like an only child, you know, with my parents in my teenage years. And I remember when I was 12 years old and we were at home and at that point I had the presence of mind to know, you know, when I do this, I know I need to do it for myself. You know, um, thank you, Mom, but not now. And a couple of years later, she revisited the topic when, again, we were in our our, uh, kitchen by ourselves around the kitchen table. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to take Jesus into my life to be my Savior. And I realize I can't save myself. I realize that Jesus died on the cross for me. And so, prayed a prayer, and then my mom called the pastor. It was on Saturday. And made an appointment for me to meet with Dr. Riley the next morning before church. 
And so I went into his office, and uh, we talked for a bit. And that morning, at the conclusion of the message, just like this, at the end of the message, he extended a public invitation and said, Now, if you've received Christ as your Savior, or if you've received Christ and you've never been baptized, I want to invite you to come forward now. And I, I remember walking down in that aisle and coming down to the front. And that night, on Sunday night, in the evening worship service, we had baptism. And I was baptized. Can I just tell you, nobody should depend upon feelings in your relationship with Christ. But, but there are times when you've had a special moment with God. You feel the presence of the Holy Spirit working in you and around you. And you know it's a special moment. And I want you to know that when I was baptized, when I went down in that water and I came up out of that water, I had a, a physical sensation that's very difficult to replicate. I mean, as sensations went. And you know, for years, I wanted to find out, why did I feel that way then? And, and this is the conclusion I reached. It feels good when we obey God. <laughs> I can tell you a ton of things that I knew God wanted me to do that I haven't done. And I felt bad about those things. But I knew I was supposed to let other people know that I'd taken Jesus as my Savior. And I was supposed to be baptized. And when I went down that water... I felt really good because I was doing what God told me I should do. Now hit the fast forward button with me. When I went to Israel, we went to the Jordan River and we had a baptismal service. There were 200 people in our group. Four busloads. That's a lot of people. And to be honest, it's too many. Because some of the sites that you go to are limited in the number of people who can go in the site. So, you know, what we'd have is our tour guide or the pastor would be making the same presentation two or three times. But at the Jordan River, everybody could be there together. And since there were probably 150 or 160 people out of the 200 who wanted to be baptized in the Jordan River, thankfully... The pastor didn't want to do it all by himself, so he appointed three other people, and I was one of the four persons doing the baptism. The other three were on the church staff. And uh, he invited me to be a part of it. And so I would, I, I didn't count, but I estimate that I probably myself baptized 40 people. And after they were all baptized, the last person the pastor baptized was me. I want to tell you something. Because if you know my story, you know that for six years, I made a decision to trust Christ, but for six years I kind of went on building my own kingdom. Until like a house of cards, it came crumbling down around me. 
And I've learned a lot about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus since I was 14 years old. And I can tell you the difference between real, lasting, authentic life change and then not quite. And in my mind, for years, I wonder, well, was my baptism legitimate? Because I've learned so much more about the Word and so much more about what it means to be a disciple. And if you're listening to me right now, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you made a decision one time, but really, your life, it wasn't a reflection of of life change that had taken place. That came actually later in your life. Hey, listen to me. You know I'm talking to you right now, if if this applies to you. Because I had this feeling. You see, your baptism should come in the right order. We don't get baptized and then get saved. We get baptized because we have been saved. My life had experienced such life change, such drastic change. It wasn't the facts that were wrong when I made my profession of faith when I was 14. Maybe it was the fact that Oh, I had stuff. Don't get me wrong. I I had sins and I knew what they were when I was 14 that needed to be forgiven. But boy, not like when I was 20 in that dormitory room at Baylor. I had some, I had some issues that needed to be dealt with. And I made a clear break with the past because I had lived long enough to realize that stuff doesn't pay off. Oh, it pays. A lot of guilt, a lot of shame. Got to do it again, only a little bit more. What I'm saying to you this morning is that on July the 23rd, we're going to have baptism here. And you know if I'm talking to you, there are some people who are here this morning who, like myself, have questions, was my baptism on the right side of my salvation? Why would you want to carry that around as long as I did and not take care of that? I'm not questioning anybody's uh, legitimate baptism. That's not what this is about. I just think God wants for us what we should want for ourselves. Authentic, lasting life change. And if you want that for your life, then the place to begin is by saying, Jesus, I need you. I know you're real. I ask you to come in and save me. Thank you that you promise you will do what you say you will do. If I will confess Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
If you call on Jesus right now, He will save you. And then you'll tell somebody about it. And you know what? You'll want to do what Jesus wants you to do. And the first thing Jesus wants us to do is a way of telling other people that we are is to profess our faith in Christ before others and to follow Him in believer's baptism. And if that's your decision this morning, then I'd love to talk with you this morning about your decision and tell you how to make those next steps. And there'll be a few of us down here at the front will just remain after the service and you come to us or call the church office and let us know that you made a decision and maybe your decision is that you want to be baptized or maybe it's the decision that you've made to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord but tell somebody because I tell you what if you don't the devil will mess with you well I don't know And, you know, you put it off, and then it just gets easier and easier to put it off. The best time to act on it is right now. Let's stand together for prayer. Lord, thank you for um, your way of being able to speak to us individually. And Father, thank you that you uh, have a desire to um, live out your life in us. That living the Christian life is not something that was ever intended for us to do alone. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit that you give to us at the moment of our salvation that never leaves us. It's always with us. And that the Holy Spirit always desires to do your will. And Father, we thank you for that. But we would also confess, Lord, that there are ways in our lives where we've been disobedient to the Holy Spirit. Where we've disobeyed your word. And we thank you for a time like this when we can come and just pray and say, God, thank you for wanting for me what I ought to want for myself, Lord. Thank you this morning for restoring my desire to have authentic, lasting life change through Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.